many of you probably got this last week, but this is our schedule for the semester. And, um, and we just thought you guys might like to know which ones you want to come to and which you want to skip. So we'll just let you know ahead of time. Um, so last week, Jim introed our, our series on the kingdom of God. And there, uh, however many days we have here, 10, 12, whatever that is, it just, we're never going to be able to do this justice. This is, the more you look at the kingdom of God, the more, or, or at, look at it as an idea or as a topic, the more you just realize this undergirds everything in the New Testament. And I think that I will be able to make a little bit of the assertion tonight that it might undergird the entire Bible, this, this notion of God's reign and his realm over everything he's created. And so tonight we're gonna be talking about Kingdom expectations. I, I think it's important to understand, I think it's important to understand what people in the Bible specifically, but even more narrow than that, Jesus' early audience in the New Testament, when they heard this notion that the kingdom of God was being proclaimed or preached or is present or is now here or is starting, what was running through their minds? Because when we know that, when we have a better idea of that early perception of the, the kingdom of God and what that entails, then we can, I think, better read our Bibles and, and understand some of the things that Jesus and his early, um, his early followers said and did that might seem a little enigmatic to us, that might seem a little weird or obscure, but no, maybe if we know that first century perception of this message they were preaching, well then we can actually understand their message itself better. Because Jesus never, I mean he's creator of all things, technically exists outside of time, he incarnates and he comes to first century Palestine, but he speaks to a very specific context. And I think when we understand what were people expecting from something like the kingdom of God, then we can better understand what Jesus was actually talking about. Mark 1 has a couple of references to this kingdom. In Mark 1, 7, um, you have, you have the, uh, John the Baptist, the forerunner, coming out, and he sa it says that he preached, saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I. He's talking about someone is coming who can not only baptize with water, but can baptize with the Spirit who is more powerful than I. And then right at the end, uh, further down in that chapter in Mark 1, 14, it says, now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. And then it kind of details what that would be. That the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And then we get to ask the question, okay, what, what were his early, what, what, what did his audience hear when he said that? Now, I think that in order to do this justice, we're gonna have to go way far back. This is going to be, forgive me, and perhaps this becomes a trend whenever I get a hold of a microphone. This is going to be a bit of a history lesson. And I think as we march through and understand a lot of the people groups and who's involved and what their expectations are and what political power they're living in and what language they speak and where they happen to live, then we can understand their expectations. So let's go all the way back. And I promise it's not going to go as slow as it might seem, but we're gonna start in Genesis 1. Genesis 1, 28. A number of studies that I've been privileged to be a part of and hear other people teaching through this summer has really helped 
hone my understanding of this particular verse, and I believe this verse might be, if you let me use a little bit of an academic slang, it might be the thesis statement for the Bible, Genesis 1.28. It tells us what God's intention for his creation, for humanity specifically is inside his creation. Let's go back to verse 27, Genesis 1.27. So God created man in his own image, as a representative. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And then he goes in and and, and explains that a little further. Effectively, God's charge is this. I've created you in my image. You're going to bear my likeness. You're going to have characteristics like me. You're going to be my representatives. You're going to govern my creation on my behalf. And you're going to do so by making babies and filling the earth and subduing creation. You are going to rule creation as my undergovernors. Is a really um, enjoyable book that I, I, uh, Andrew Wilson wrote. He calls them undergovernors. You are going to govern earth on my behalf. So God is king, and that's why our first bullet there on your notes is that if, if Genesis 1.28 is something of a thesis statement for what the kingdom of God will look like, that he will be the supreme monarch with people ruling underneath him and on his behalf, we first begin with what we see as a theocracy. A theocracy. Now your notes here say, the kingdom of God is God's reign over his people and his entire created universe. That we talked about last week. In Genesis 2, God tasked Adam and Eve with governing the world on his behalf. They failed, and then God chose Israel to govern on his behalf as well. God was king with a kingdom of priests. So we have in this kingdom thus far a, a, an establishment where God himself rules over everything and then he delegates responsibilities to those who rule underneath him and with the authority he's given them. Now, like I said, Adam and Eve failed at this. We, we, we know that. And then in Genesis 12 and then in Genesis 15, God tells them, okay, this is how I'm going to restore what's been broken. This is how I'm going to redeem what's been lost. My kingdom isn't going to, isn't, uh, it's not going to suffer in futility. I'm going to repair what has been broken. And so in Genesis 12, he makes a covenant with Abraham. And in 15... He describes a little more about that covenant. In 12, he says, I'm going to give you a large people. I'm going to give you a specific place, and I'm going to give you a great name. People, place, land. I'm going to give you these things. And then in Genesis 15, Abraham is saying, like, I know that's what I'm supposed to expect, that you are going to come through on your promises, but I just, I don't see that. And God comes in and says, look toward heaven. This is Genesis 15, 5. And number the stars if you're able to number him. Just daring him. Count them. I try I try if you, if you must. Just like that, that's how numerous your offspring will be, God says. And then he puts Abraham into a deep sleep. And then down in verse 13, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. 
and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nations that they serve, and afterwards they will come out with great possessions. Now there is a, there's an idea there that is going to, I actually just now found this thread about 30 minutes ago. This notion that all throughout the scriptures, when God describes his kingdom, it is in the context of judging those nations who oppose his people. It's amazing. He will judge those who have afflicted them for 400 years. And this really helps me clarify when we get to the mindset of the people in Jesus' day, what they were expecting and why they were crying out to God in the context of the Roman Empire. So what are we hoping for in this period of time as the people of God? How are we hoping that Genesis 128 will be achieved in a broken world where we are hoping that God will restore things through his promises in Genesis 12 to Abraham and then the covenant he ratifies with Abraham in Genesis 15. Now, the people of God always perceive the promises of God inside their own context. It actually helps free me a little bit from some of the frustration I have with kind of an American Christianity. Because when I look through scripture, I think, okay, well, everybody else is making the same mistakes we are. They can only interpret the promises of God based on their immediate context and the very immediate past. And, and the people, Moses, or, uh, Abraham, and then Israel specifically, are going to think of God's kingdom as coming in in the context of a nomadic life in the wilderness, in the context of Egypt as slaves, and then again in the context of Canaan. And, and what I hope that we see tonight is that none of this is necessarily wrong, it's just incomplete. And as we go through the history of Scripture and the history of the people of God, we will see that they're very rarely altogether wrong, just always incomplete, just myopic. They're human. They can't see the whole picture. And it's going to be amazing whenever we see all these ideas, these notions, these expectations of what the kingdom will be, and then when Jesus comes on and starts to describe it, it is so all-encompassing. Jesus' message just astonishes me as it is always apparently much bigger than I ever thought. And he is just radical in the way that he describes the kingdom. In, in the first, in the beginning of scripture, the, the people of God operated under a theocracy. And we know that, that that prophecy that God gave, that promise he gave to Abraham in Genesis 15, it came true. They actually did end up in Egypt. And they did end up as slaves for 400 years and God did end up delivering them and they did take many of the Egyptian possessions into the promised land and they established the nation of Israel in Canaan and, and things are going swimmingly. Genesis 128 seems to be taking place and then we all know they asked for a king. And all of a sudden, the people aren't so satisfied. In the context of needing Genesis 128 to be true and to take place, they're not so satisfied with the theocracy. No, we would rather have a monarchy. Like Jim mentioned last week, the people grew tired of waiting on God to speak through his spokesman, the prophets. And they grew enamored with what it looked like around them. You see, like the, everyone around us, you have the, the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Philistines, all the other ites. And 
we've got to be able to deal with them. We need a king. And they go and ask for a king. And it was, uh, it was a deplorable request. And yet God grants it. There are even provisions in the law already for this to take place. So God grants them a king in Saul. And there's a, a little theme that you'll see with people that the, the humanity loves to steal authority from God, or at least that's, that's what we think we're doing. We'd give it our best shot. In a great book by Andrew Wilson called God Stories that walks through all of scripture, it has this theme that he picks up all through scripture that man is constantly trying to, he uses this word, usurp God's authority. And humanity has a hard time saying we will just submit to a, a God that we can't necessarily see, though in, it was amazing how well Israel had it. Because I, don't, I, I just don't understand why we asked for a king whenever we have things like the tabernacle, the holy of holies, and yet the people want a human king. So repeatedly usurping God's authority, the nation requests a human king, 1 Samuel 8. Wrong though the request was, God established his kingdom under David, who was, again, to govern on God's behalf. And God sets things up in 2 Samuel 7, and he explains how this is going to now achieve Genesis 1.28 and the promises made to Abraham in Genesis 12 and 15. And here's what he says to, uh, through the prophet Nathan to David. 2 Samuel 7, picking, up, picking it up halfway through verse 9. I will make for you, David, a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth, and I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Kingdom expectations have now been expanded. Now God is going to, through this man, establish a kingdom, an eternal kingdom. So even though the monarchy began as a wicked idea, God comes in through David and redeems it and says, actually, I'm going to really use this. Kingdom expectations have changed again. So if in the theocracy we were doing it in the context of Canaan and of Egypt and we had such markers of the kingdom as the tabernacle and the holy of holies, or the Ark of the Covenant. In the monarchy, we will do it in the context of the Philistines, the Ammonites, the Moabites, all the other ites. And we will do it now with a palace. And you'll see with his son, a temple. These are your visible manifestations of God establishing his kingdom. I'll do it through an ark and through a tabernacle. And then I'll do it through a, a palace and a temple. 
And the people of God are continuing to look to these things for the hope of their deliverance from the brokenness and the promise of well, Genesis 1.28 coming true. That God will make us, a, he, will, he will use us to create a kingdom of priests that, that fill the earth and subdue it and live in a righteous way. But even this didn't go as planned. Because on your next line down, you see Israel, because the kings couldn't do this well, they go into captivity. They're punished in 722 and 586 BC, and they come out a weakened vassal state. Second Kings, towards the end of the book, describes what went wrong, but basically the kings were held responsible for the, na- the nation astray. They, they went after foreign gods. They didn't tear down the shrines they were supposed to. They didn't follow God and serve him and govern on his behalf. They didn't carry forward the kingdom of God. And God punishes them. In 722, the north falls. Assyria comes in, conquers them takes the, bright, the best and the brightest off in the captivity, and then the rest they leave there and they bring in their own people and intermarry and basically water down the bloodlines. That's a good way to ruin a nation is to water down the bloodlines. New Testament calls them Samaritans. 586 BC, the south falls. See, not only could these kings not hold the nation together, even after the civil war, they couldn't hold on to the thrones they had created. And the south falls and Babylon takes them into captivity. You see, Israel was not functioning as proper representatives, as proper governors, as kingdom of priests. They were polytheistic and terribly so. And God punishes them, takes them into captivity. And when they, when they come back, King Cyrus will... Uh, will we'll establish a decree that allows the Israelites to come back to their land in, um, in uh, 550s era, in that area. So about 30 years. And when they come back, they had a beautiful temple, Solomon's temple. Now they have, I'll do it in lowercase because it was a piece of junk. They had a pathetic temple that they rebuilt and no palace whatsoever because the, the power was now in Persia. They were a vassal state functioning as an extension, as a client state of another nation. When they came back, it's fascinating to go read Ezra, uh, Ezra and Nehemiah. Ezra 3 describes a little bit of the angst that they were dealing with. So they, they come back in and, they, and Zerubbabel kind of works about to rebuild a temple. They lay a new foundation. It's nothing even remotely close to the old temple. As far as scale or grandeur, it is pathetic. They lay and, and all the younger people are just so excited. We've got a temple. So excited. And here's how Ezra 3 describes it. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. 
but many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted for joy. They just said, this is not how it's supposed to be. This is not how God designed this to be. This is broken. This is pathetic. And I think that the people of God are now saying, what should we hope in? What are our expectations of the kingdom now? Now they did have a glimmer of hope because Daniel, when he was in Babylon, he prophesied and, and he, I think, established a hope that the, the people of God would cling to for hundreds of years. In Daniel 2, um, Daniel is in, he, he is part of Nebuchadnezzar's court. Nebuchadnezzar has a dream that can't be interpreted by the men that, uh, that he has there with him. And so Daniel comes in and, and he passes the test. He, he tells Nebuchadnezzar what the dream was without having been told it. So he said, if you, if, you are, if you are an actual seer, if you can speak and interpret dreams, tell me what my dream is. He recounts his dream to the, uh, the ruler there. And then he gives the interpretation and he describes this statue with a, with a head of gold and then silver and then bronze and then iron mixed with clay. And then he, he, he gives an interpretation and he says, the gold is Babylon. The silver is the Persian Empire, the Medo-Persian Empire. The bronze is the Greek empire. And then the iron and the clay, that will be the Rome, the Roman empire. And Daniel says, and this is where Israel again has this beautiful hope to cling to. He says, yeah, um, that's going to get crushed, that's going to get crushed, that's going to get crushed, and that's going to get crushed by a rock that will crush these and in so doing become a mountain. And it's quite clear that this is something divine. And he even goes in and he just describes like, no matter how dark it seems, Yahweh himself will vindicate his holy name. Here's what it says in Daniel 2. We've skipped the whole interpretation, but I want to get to the end. In verse 44, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. Okay, kingdom expectations are now looking at at least something that's eternal. Will never be destroyed. Nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all those kingdoms and bring them to an end and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, that means a divine creation, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall happen after this. The dream is certain and its interpretation is true. Daniel comes in and says, the kingdom of God is going to judge these nations and it is going to establish that eternal throne promised to David 
in 2 Samuel 7. And, and it's, it's to this prophecy that I have to believe the people of God clung to in hope. Now, this prophecy was about 600 uh, B.C., just a little bit before the, the Jerusalem finally fell to Babylon. I just have to, when they come back <laughs> and they build this little joke of a temple in Ezra, in Nehemiah, and they're, and they're rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem, I just have to wonder, do the people that know about this prophecy look at it and say, really? This, this is what's happening. But they did have this hope that God would judge and he would vindicate the righteous. Which brings me to where I want to spend the most of our time today. So if you end here, if the people come back, and I like to ask this question, if they come back from uh, Babylon and there's basically the populace and a priesthood, there's no king, there are governors, but it's basically a stripped down, weakened Israel, and then all of a sudden we open up the New Testament. And you have the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes, the Zealots, the Herodians. You have Rome. What happened? Because my, new, my Old Testament ended, and it looked very different than this. We have another temple now, and it's even bigger than Solomon's. What happened? And I think whenever we study the history in between Malachi and Matthew, I think we get to really see what Jesus' first hearers thought whenever he comes on the scene and says, repent and believe. The kingdom of God is at hand. This is known in most circles as the 400 years of silence. God, he didn't really speak through prophets, writing prophets specifically in this time period. That's why we don't have these books in our Protestant Bibles. But there, we do have the books. We do have a lot of things that were written in this time period. And I would argue that they're valuable to read. Specifically, if I can give a recommended reading list, First, Second Maccabees, and then the Wisdom of Solomon. Not because they're divinely inspired. I don't believe they are. But because they're incredibly helpful they're incredibly helpful for understanding the first century Jewish mindset. Now here are some of the factors that we're dealing with in this particular time period. You have there at the bottom of your notes, in the 400 years of silence, you have the, the coming of Hellenism, which is basically a phrase that means to make something Greek, to Greekify things. And this was started by a man you may have heard of, Alexander the Great. Who by the age of 26, 27, had conquered vast, vast sections of the known world. As someone who's older than that, it makes me feel like I haven't accomplished a whole lot. But Alexander the Great began his um, military campaign in 336 B.C., and it ran all the way to 323 at his death. 
Now what he did, this is how you can masterfully amass a, a powerful empire. What you don't want to do to create an enormous empire, you don't want to just go in, conquer it, and kill everybody. Because then you just have a large swath of land and who's going to mow it, who's going to take care of everything. You don't kill everybody. You make them Greek. You assimilate them to your culture because better than dead people, much more valuable to me as a ruler are people that now are adapted to my way of life and pay me taxes. And so Alexander the Great, he goes throughout the Mediterranean world and then on into the promised land and, and beyond and he, he brings with it the Greek language, Greek commerce and infrastructure, and Greek philosophy, each of which affected the New Testament in tremendous ways. The fact that we have Bibles in English that are as complete as they are is due in large part to the Greek language and the Greek and Roman infrastructure. It's amazing how Paul was able to travel the Roman, the, the, the Roman world. It's amazing how Paul was able to engage with other people so easily. And it's because of what this guy did. Now, he brings these, these, uh, these Greek ideas, and, and now we're on the back of your page. Now you have a power struggle. Because remember, Israel is weak. They're a vassal state. They exist under the permission of existing from the, the, the Medo-Persian Empire. They don't have a standing army. They have no real ability to maintain their land. And what they have is they have a very valuable piece of land. Israel is, in the ancient world, one of those pieces of property you want to have. It is the shipping crossroads of Africa, Asia, and Europe. If you own that property, you own those shipping ports, you can make a lot of money. And God gives this land to his people, and now people are going to fight for it. So you have these new political powers show up. And Alexander the Great doesn't live forever. He died quite young and quite unexpectedly. When you die unexpectedly out on the military campaign, you don't have a whole lot of ideas on how you're going to uh, bring down the, the, uh, the breakdown of the kingdom. So it's just broken up amongst his generals. They just take certain territories. And by the time the power all shakes out, there's four major territories that are taken by Alexander the Great's generals. And his generals, the, the ones that really, really matter to us is the... Seleucid Empire to the north. You know, say, think Syria. And the Ptolemaic Empire to the south. Think Egypt. And remember, both of these are incredibly Hellenized Greek regions. And sitting in between them is little old Israel. Valuable piece of land, piece of property that I would like to have if I am Seleucia or the Ptolemaic Empire. And they battle for it quite a bit. It's amazing. In a 17-year period, the, uh, the who controlled Jerusalem between the Seleucids and the Ptolemies changed seven times. They just kept coming in and clashing and pushing the other one back and pushing the other one back. And finally, Seleucia gains the upper hand. And they are unlike they're both very, very Greek, but these people are more aggressive. Aggressive. I don't know if that's right, but 
The Seleucids are more aggressive and they want to come in and they want to force the Israelites, force the Jewish people to be more Greek. And they want to do so at the expense of the Jewish religion. See, Alexander the Great really didn't care who you worshiped. As long as you paid your taxes, he really wasn't a guy that was all that concerned with your religion. Actually, he thought it probably is valuable to let you maintain your religion. But a guy steps on the scene from the Seleucid Empire, a man named Antiochus Epiphanes. And he is going to shake things up to his own expense. He is going to come in and he is going to level Jerusalem. He's going to breach the temple. He's going to rob it of its vestments and he is going to say, and you must bow down to our God. You cannot bow down to Yahweh. You can't even have a Torah. Like you, The scriptures are now illegal. He went in and he not only um, sacrificed a pig on the altar, which many people consider the abomin abomination of desolation, sacrifices a pig on the altar, one of the most heinous things you could do in a Jewish mind. Not only that, he comes in and he maims the priests. He cuts them, which invalidated them from being able to, to go in and worship. When a, when, a, when a priest is physically deformed, he is no longer fit, per Jewish law, to go in and offer sacrifices. And here's the problem. Who's going to go, if our priests, and if particularly our high priests are maimed, no longer fit to go into God's presence, who's going in on the Day of Atonement? Who's going to offer sacrifices for the sins of the nation? We have a problem. We have a severe, the Israelites no longer have the ability to sit underneath this kind of oppression. And while many of them did find it just advantageous to go with the Hellenization and become as Greek as possible and go with the path of least resistance. There was one family, one very, very important family, the Hasmonean family, that just said, Hasmonean, that just said, we're not gonna do that. The Hasmonean dynasty came in and, and the patriarch of this family, his name is Matthias the, um, the Hasmonean. And so now we're underneath your, your notes there under the Maccabean Revolt. Ran from 164 to about 63 BC. This family, Matthias said, no, I am clinging to my hope of the kingdom of God. I'm clinging to the fact that he will vindicate and judge the nations around us. I am clinging to the fact that his righteous messenger, his suffering servant will come. And I am not doing this. And here is uh, those books that I said we don't have in our Bibles. I got one right here. Second Maccabees is, um, it records a prayer that would, have, that would have described the sentiment of this particular time period. This is what it says. O oh Lord, Lord, God, creator of all things, you are awe-inspiring and strong and just and merciful. You alone are king and are kind. You alone are bountiful. You alone are just and almighty and eternal. You rescue Israel from every evil. Think of this in the context of being oppressed by a foreign army trying to make you bow down to their gods and make it illegal to bow down to your own. 
You rescue Israel from every evil. You you chose the ancestors and consecrated them. Accept the sacrifice on behalf of all your people, Israel, and preserve your portion and make it holy. This prayer is saying, purify the nation. Make us holy and righteous again. Gather together our scattered people. Set free those who are slaves among the Gentiles. Look on those who are rejected and despised and let the Gentiles know that you are our God. Punish those who oppress and are insolent with pride. Plant your people in your holy place as Moses promised. And it's this mindset that led Matthias the Maccabee to say to Antiochus Epiphanes, I will not worship your gods and I will offer sacrifices to my own. And Antiochus Epiphanes says, fine, I don't care what you do. I'll get another Jew to worship for you. Brings in a Jew, probably had no idea it was gonna go so badly for him. Matthias kills that guy instead of letting him worship in his place. I will not profane my God's name, he said. I, will, I would rather murder someone than profane the name of the Lord. And Matthias starts a revolt, and he takes his family out into the desert to kind of figure out what they're going to do. Matthias, shortly thereafter, dies, and his sons, Simon and Judas Maccabeus, become very important players now. Simon is going to lead, and he's going to to fulfill the office of high priest for a little while. Judas Maccabeus, his name, Maccabee means the hammer, so he's a warrior, He comes in and he fights the Seleucids and he pushes them back and he pushes them out. And after a short period of of war, he now controls the kingdom. He eventually gets the the borders of Judea almost back to the borders of Solomon. are, Are we seeing this happen? Are the kingdom expectations taking place, the people are wondering? Is it coming through the Hasmonean dynasty? Is this the one the Lord is going to use to instill his kingdom and take everything back? Is Genesis 1.28 going to happen? And, and I have to wonder, when the dust all settles and our nation is now sovereign, we're no longer under foreign armies' thumb, there is one hiccup, and it's the high priesthood. The high priesthood is all messed up. Because we're going way back. So you have the high Zadokite priesthood. I'm going to do my best not to bore you guys to death with this. But Zadok was the high priest during, Solomon's, or during Saul's reign. The high priesthood is not something you could go to school to become. You could never just, you couldn't be elected high priest. High priest, the, the, the office of the high priest is a family affair. It comes down through ancestral lines. High priests were important at the high holidays. That would be the, uh, the Passover, Pentecost, and, um, and uh, the, the, the tabernacles. No, Feast of Booths, whatever the fall festival is. The high priest would function as a very important player in those, but his most important function was the one who would go in each year on the Day of Atonement and offer sacrifices for the nation. He might even need to separate himself for a week beforehand to make sure that he is clean and ritually pure to go in and offer the sacrifices. And God had a very specific line of men, and his ancestors would be the high priests. And Zadok is Saul's high priest, and the first thing that that good King David does whenever he takes the throne finally is he... He, and he selects his own high priest. 
He doesn't depose Zadok. He has two of them. That's just, when, when David selected Abiathar to function as a co-high priest, the high priesthood was messed up. Now, his, his son Solomon, wicked though he was, got rid of Abiathar and made sure that Zadok was the lone high priest. And this is important because all down through the history of Israel, someone in Zadok's line is, at, is uh, in the office of the high priest. Becomes a problem whenever the last legitimate high priest, Onius III, is deposed and killed by this man. He's gone. And now we have a problem. The Zadokian priest is gone. The, the, the proper high priest has been killed by a foreign invader, and it was given to his brother Jason. Okay, so we're still kind of in the family. Jason's not the rightful heir to the priest, to the high priest, but we still have Jason. But just, I had to bring my notes. It's a lot of names. But just watch. We put Jason here. Nope, he dies. Because we're going to put a man named Menelaus, who is the first person who isn't even remotely related to the line of Zadok at the high priesthood. And he is killed by someone who now props up a man named Alcimus who is killed and then Judas Maccabeus's son from that Hasmonean dynasty he comes in and his name is Jonathan and on on and down you have a corrupt high priesthood and I'll come back up here until you have a man named Antigonus yeah I spelled that right who was elected to the high priest, appointed to the high priesthood by none other than Herod the Great. The highest office in the Jewish religion is now being bought and sold. Men can be murdered. Whoever is the highest payer, whoever is the most corrupt can easily attain the high priesthood. And Herod the Great's appointment after Antigonus, Annas, we know from the Gospels. And his five sons all served as high priest. His son-in-law served as high priest. His grandson served as high priest. What you see is that the high priesthood is taken from the rightful family and it is now going to the highest bidder. We are buying and selling religion now. So even though this family did a lot of good, I don't know if a high priesthood that looks like that starts to fulfill this and start to look how Daniel described it here. Herod comes in. He is, uh, he is both friend, he is friends with both Caesar and Pompey. And it's a very advantageous place to be. But Caesar has one person he hates, and that is Pompey. And so he has him killed. And so um, Caesar, or, or, or Herod says, okay, here's what I gotta do. I have to make sure that I'm on the side of the winner here and the guy with the most power, the biggest army with the biggest treasure troves. I need to be on his team. So he loads up, he empties the coffers, sends it to Caesar and, Sarah, and Caesar says, I like this, I'll make you king of the Jews. That's awesome, you are now going to rule my territory because in AD 60, or BC 63, 
you have it transition from the Hasmonean dynasty they've lost. And now Rome is running the show. And this is the world that the New Testament is born into. Rome is in power. The high priesthood, the most venerated office in the Jewish religion is bought and sold by whoever can get whoever else killed. We have no Davidic king. We are again subject to another nation. And the people are saying, if we're a client state of Rome, what should I be looking for in God's kingdom? When is it going to break in? And, and you wonder, are they, are they remembering such passages as Isaiah 36? I'll read to you this passage. Sorry. Ezekiel 36. I'm like, that doesn't look right. Okay, Ezekiel 36. These are the kind of words that continue to give the people hope. Ezekiel 36, verse 22. Therefore say to the house of Israel, this, by the way, was from um, captivity. Thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate, there's that judgment word, I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God. When through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries, and I will bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and I shall be clean, or, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. You have judgment, vindication, people being made righteous. This is the kingdom that they're hoping for. And from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. God, I think he's saying, don't worry about this. This is coming back. The kingdom will look how it intended to look. You will be my people and I will be your God. And it's that hope that they're clinging to in the ancient world, in first century Palestine, when they're sitting under the, th under the thumb of the Roman Empire with no king and corrupt high priesthood. Now, let's, let's wrap up by talking about the people here and how they would have understood the kingdom or at least expected the kingdom to come. You have first the Herodians. This would be Herod the Great and those who came after him. These men are, Herod the Great is from Idumea, so just south of Jerusalem. He isn't necessarily a Roman import, but he is, in, he is connected with Rome. He's under the rule of Rome. He's an extension of Rome. And he is a, a man whose only aim is to make sure he maintains peace and continues to send taxes to Rome. 
For him, for the Herodians, the, the kingdom of God is now. <laughs> Why would I want anything else? I mean, complete power. To him, like his greatest hope is Rome. And very closely aligned with him would have been the high priests. And you have in parentheses the Sadducees. Two primary groups in the New Testament that um, were at least the religious elite. The Sadducees and the Pharisees. The Sadducees are those who jumped all over. They were terribly Hellenized. They had this really um, Greek way of thinking that denied the value of the physical and elevated the value of the spiritual, of the otherworldly, of the mental, of the mind, of the cognitive nature. And, and so it's no wonder that these men, they would go with the most powerful, the most intelligent, those could have, who could affect their will on people. And it's no surprise then that the Sadducees had no space in their belief system for a silly idea like the resurrection. For them, the kingdom was now as well. For them, like, <laughs> we're gonna stay with Rome too. We are going to, this, this is the, the Sadducees were a, a small group of very wealthy families that controlled things very well. In opposition to the Pharisees, who would have been the scribes and the teachers. These would have been the, the religious leaders who represented the populace, represented more of the common man. And they were, they were not so Hellenized. They were extremely conservative and they were looking for that day when God would vindicate his people, when he would judge the nations and whenever he would instill righteousness in the people of God. And the Pharisees, they... For them, they had a hard time with Jesus because for them, just none of this looked like the kingdom of God. Therefore, their, their notion, their expectations were all future. They were all in the future. If the Sadducees could be, um, if they were in the back pocket of Rome, the Pharisees were the, the ones that separated themselves from Rome. They wanted to, to, to retreat and to hide themselves in the law so much so that they would make new laws about the law. They loved the law. We're just going to be as righteous as we can and in so doing, bring on the kingdom of God. God will, he will vindicate the righteous people and he will judge those who don't follow him. And what I love is that Jesus walks in and he challenges all of that. He says, okay, the Herodians, they are, they are Roman extensions and they, they're really satisfied with the way things are now. Sadducees, though they pretend to be followers of Yahweh, they, they really seem to follow Rome as much as anything. Again, for them, kingdom expectations are now. The kingdom is here and now. The Pharisees are so otherworldly, they, can't, they have no notion of what Jesus might mean whenever John the Baptist says someone more powerful is coming and Jesus says the kingdom of God is at hand. They would say, really? Because that's awesome. That's what we've been praying for. That's what we've been hoping for. This doesn't look like it. It's that mindset that when Jesus works miracles and feeds 5,000 people, they want to make him king. Because they said, there's no space in our understanding for the kingdom of God while Rome is in charge. 
We need a king that's going to deal with this. We need to go back to the Hasmonean dynasty. Let's, let's make sure we get the high priesthood right. But they did a really good job of running off those who oppressed God's people. We need that, Jesus. We're going to make you king. And Jesus says, absolutely not. Even Peter can't get this through his head. Peter's, <laughs> Jesus tells Peter what's going to happen to him. And, he's, and he rebukes Jesus. That is not what the kingdom of God looks like, Jesus. And Jesus says, yes it is, get behind me, Satan. That's not how this is gonna work. I find it amazing, even in Acts, the disciples still seem to be scrambling to understand the implications of the kingdom of God because whenever he is, um, whenever he is about to ascend to the Father's right hand, they ask him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They're still thinking, we've gotta deal with what... Rome is still the problem. We need our kingdom back. But it's amazing that in the Gospels, Jesus does something else. He, he goes to a synagogue and, and opens a scroll and starts to read. I'm, he reads just a small snippet of it, but I want to read the whole chapter. He, Jesus reads Isaiah 61, a section of it. This is what he says. Oh, this is the whole chapter, sorry. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. Even, even this passage talks about vengeance and judgment on those other nations, but it also talks about good news to the poor, the brokenhearted. To grant to those who mourn in Zion to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness. Yeah, righteousness is going to be a part of this kingdom. The planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Jesus, when he quotes this chapter, says, yeah, what you want, what you, what you expect about the moving back of Rome, that's, that's true. Just maybe not how you see it happening. Strangers shall stand and tend your flocks, and foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers, but you shall be called the priests of the Lord. Oh, we've gone back to the kingdom of priests. They shall speak of you as the ministers of our God. You shall eat of the wealth of the nations, and in their glory you shall boast. Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. For, the Lord, for I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them their recompense. I will make an everlasting covenant with them. We're going back to covenants now. Their offspring shall be known among the nations and their descendants in the midst of the peoples all who see them shall acknowledge them and they are the offspring of the Lord has blessed I will greatly rejoice in the Lord my soul shall exalt in my God for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation 
He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. And Jesus, he, he reads a section of this and sits down and says, yeah, this has been fulfilled today. All those promises, and by the way, he would not have needed to quote the whole chapter for them to understand what he was saying. All of these are fulfilled in your very presence today, Jesus says. And I find it interesting that so many of these involve righteousness, vindication of God's holy people, and the judgment of the nations around him, and my mind immediately went to, well, how does this book end? Revelation 7 says this. Well, it actually starts out in six. Hmm. Revelation six, verse nine. When he opened the fifth seal, I, John, saw under the altar the souls of those who'd been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. Tell me if this sounds like the people of Israel. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? The, the people of God, when Jesus came in to proclaim the kingdom, they felt that vengeance ought to be taken on those who were oppressing God's people. They were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. That's such a helpful reminder when I think that maybe the kingdom should just be finished. Give them your white robe of righteousness. Just rest a little while longer. Still working. That chapter ends with this beautiful, beautiful hymn. Revelation 7, verse 13. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, representing their righteousness? And from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. All of these images are coming back. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to the springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. I'm convinced that the Bible actually says, yeah, all of your small versions of what the kingdom should be it's all kind of true and more. And Jesus just says, trust me with this. And he shows up in dusty little Palestine and starts to preach, repent and believe for the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is here. And when we understand that through their eyes, that you can understand why the crowds latched onto Jesus so quickly why they followed after this man who could heal and who could work miracles and who could speak with such authority. Next week, we will actually deal with the office of the Messiah in particular. 
and how he is going to fit in and fulfill the kingdom of God. You are dismissed.